Melissa came up to me, uh, actually she texted me uh, a link to this app. Uh, this app is called Agape, and it's, uh, what it's for is for meaningful conversation between your spouse and you. So it sparks conversation between you and your spouse and by daily asking you questions that you have to reply to. And here's the catch, is you know, the question can be, what is one thing you love about your spouse? That's the question. So usually Melissa beats me to the punch and she answers this question and then I get notified that Melissa has answered this question, what is the best thing you love about your spouse? I'm like, wow, what is she gonna say? But before I can see her response, I have to reply. Slightly unfair, but uh, no. So um, it's, a, it's actually a great app to, uh, to spark those kind of conversations you don't always have in your mind during the day. And so uh, it, it was a great thing. We've been doing it every day. And specifically on March 15th, we were asked this question. How could your partner understand you better? And usually, like, I'm sitting there trying to create my response uh, usually it takes me more than like 30 minutes. I have to sit there and think. I'm thinking through all the things. How I want this to like conjure up this. I, may, I want her to cry when she reads this. If she's at Publix or wherever she is, I want her to be amazed by my words. But on this day, on March 15th, just a few days ago, uh, the question, how could your partner understand you better? And her response is all blurred out. And then I write my response in record time. And I say, drink a bottle of hot sauce and then try to remain calm during the heat. That, to me, gets me. If you want to understand me, and for those that have experienced me, whether you're on the lead team or whether you've just had five seconds with me, I'm a, kind of a, can be an intense person. And so I thought about that. I was like, man, it's, it reminds me of the time I went to the Cravens, and they gave me this little toothpick. And on the end of the toothpick was this black dot. And they're like, Haha, hey, you should taste that. I'm like, this is not going to end well for me. And so I literally just licked the toothpick, and my mouth was set on fire, but I had to continue to compose myself through Bible study and act like I was unfazed. That is how my wife can better understand me, is to drink a bottle of hot sauce, and with everything inside of you burning, still try to maintain composure. That's who I am. I don't have a dimmer switch. I'm all on, I'm all off. I, there's no in-between with me. So it often affords people to get really intimidated at me, but oftentimes it also asks, people often ask me to come into a situation to, to manage it. And so that's how uh, something that uh, we have done that recently has been really good for our marriage. But I, I mentioned it this morning. Um, I was going to tell you what she said about me, but it's kind of, uh, it's kind of really good. But uh, anyway, uh, anyway, we come today to Luke chapter 15. And one of my, the second favorite story, my first favorite story in the Gospels is the paralytic. And then my second favorite story is the prodigal son. I guess I have an affinity for the letter P. But uh, we come to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to dive into this parable of the um, prodigal son. But just like that question, how can you, what can you give to your partner so that they can understand you better? Jesus is giving this parable so that we can understand the Father better. And that's what I want us to begin with this morning. I want us to see that what Jesus is about to teach us by way of parable is something that the Father is about. Who he is, how he works, what he does. And that's how we can better understand this parable. 
Now, keep in mind, here's the context before we dive into uh, Luke 15. The context is Jesus is um, there and he's with the scribes and the Pharisees on one side and he's dining and eating with sinners and tax collectors on the other side. And this creates a dispute among the Pharisees. Imagine that. If you've been reading your Bible, you're probably like, man, these Pharisees just kind of always ridicule what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is having these people around him. There's two sets of people. And so he begins to teach them by way of parable. One first parable he talks about is the lost sheep going and chasing the one, leaving the 99. Then he goes and he talks about the lost coin that the widow searches for, finds, and celebrates, with both of those parables ending in celebration. But then he climaxes at the point of his teaching in a lengthy parable that's only found in the book, book of Luke about the prodigal son. Now, a lot of us are probably familiar with this story. A lot of us are probably saying, yes, and I even referenced that it's about the prodigal son. But I'm going to show you today that there are three characters involved in the story, but the most significant character and the one that I'm actually going to speak most about today is the father. Because the father is laced throughout the whole parable. And it is Jesus responding to the specific question that the Pharisees are accusing him of. Why are you celebrating with the sinners? They don't have a paradigm. They don't have a milieu where that should be a good thing. They don't understand God to do such a thing, and Jesus is claiming to be God. So they think he is ridiculous. They think he is prodigal. Prodigal just means wasteful, extravagantly wasteful. And so as we dive into this parable, I want, uh, there's a few things I want to keep in mind here. That one, the whole purpose of this parable is to teach us and to answer that question that the Pharisees are asking. Why are you celebrating with the sinners, the scum of the earth, the lowlifes? Why are you celebrating with them when you should be celebrating with us? That's in the mind of the Pharisees. And so let's now look and just remember this very familiar parable, beginning with verse 11. And he said to them, Jesus that is, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided the wealth between them. Notice, he just didn't give the younger money. He gave the older his share, which was double the amount the younger received. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now he had spent everything, uh, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the, in the country and he began to be impoverished. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men." So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now this older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed and fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to dive into your teaching for us today, as you bring forth your word to remind us of all that you have done and all that you have worked for us and in us, we pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes, our mind, and our hearts towards your truth this morning that it might be effectual in us and that we might live by it the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin with a spoiler and tell you the main point of this parable. And then I want to flesh it out by looking at the lessons we learn from the Father and then the general lessons we learn with just this parable. The biggest lesson that we learn from this parable is that the Father is above all things a Father of conditional, unconditional love. His character, nature, actions are all done from a motive of love. His love is not lost by the rebellious acts of a younger son, nor is it gained by the religious accomplishments of the elder son. The father's love is etched into the fiber of his being and therefore is not contingent upon external factors. His love is constant and never changing. It is and it has always been. The only other significance that we see in this unconditional love in this parable are the responses of those hearts uh, and whether or not they are moved by the Father's love. We will see in this parable by the Father how Jesus presents to us an unchanging Father who loves radically or prodigally despite the situation, who has two sons that are living their lives in polar opposite directions but are both in need of the same lesson. Hearts moved by love towards a life of love which the Father gives them. This parable teaches the answer to the question that is raised on Jesus. Why is he celebrating with sinners? 
So lessons from the Father. What can we learn from the Father? If I lift before you that the Father is the primary character because in him we find the solution and the answer to the question. Why do you celebrate with sinners? It makes no sense. There's a law, there's rules, there's regulations. We keep them, they destroy them, and yet you're celebrating with them. Why? And Jesus answers them in a parable in the character of the Father. And so let's look at the Father. The Father allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He's asked to pretty much die and give the inheritance to his sons. Why would he do that? Why would he allow such a thing? The, father's, the father operates in a belief that love is sufficient and love is the greatest tool by which he will parent his children. It is sufficient for repentance, salvation, and sanctification. Love is the greatest tool by which change comes into those who are rebellious and religious. This is why the father's response to both his children are, who are different in the same way, which is through and by love. The father can let the younger go because he is confident that the way he has loved his son will lead to his repentance when his son truly needs it. The father can go out to the anger elder brother and plead with him because he believes that the son who clings so closely to his merits and accomplishments needs to know that the love he so desperately is seeking isn't earned, but it's freely given. The father is not offering the younger son anything that has not already been made available to the elder. The only difference is that the younger has appealed to the father for his love despite how he has been rebellious. The father allows what, allows what he hates to accomplish his love. And that's what we see all the time is he get God, in, in Romans, Paul tells us that God gives them over to themselves, delivers over themselves to their desires, to their sins. How hard would that be as parents to do that for our children, knowing that what they're doing is going to lead them down a road that it won't be well for them. But maybe we allow it to happen. If we have communicated perfect love, if we have communicated that love is what they need, then when they come to an end of themselves, they will be reminded of the love that we have always displayed to them. Isn't that how God brings us to repentance? Through his loving kindness. It is not an easy, it's not by a set of rules. It is by his prodigal love for which he loves us that leads us to repentance. And this is the very thing that the father is teaching us in this story. Another thing that we learn from the father is the distance that they create, the sons create between themselves and their father is covered by the father. The younger son distanced himself by running from home. The elder son distanced himself by not coming into the home during the celebration. So the father brings love to both of them. Moved by compassion, the father runs to the younger son while he is still far off. The father comes out to the elder to warm his heart towards compassion, demonstrating that whatever love is needed, he will bring and apply. Isn't this true with God towards us? The father sends the son. The son accomplishes the greatest love for us by dying on the cross. And then the son sends the spirit to work in our life 
the love that the Father had for us. We create distance all the time with God. And that distance is usually riddled because of our sin. We separate ourselves because of our sin and we're given over to ourselves. But the moment that we come to our senses, like the younger son here, the moment that we decide and the moment that we realize that the things that we're pursuing are not affording us the love we so desperately desire, that actually the love is right there with the Father and you had it all along. That's the reality and that's the lesson we learn from the Father. The parable is consistent with what God has already communicated about himself. We know that God is love. It's not something he does, it's something he is. The law that he gives to us to live out is summed up in this, to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. God has moved towards us because of his love. This is the motive for sending his son to die. It is his means to draw us to repentance. It is the reason his heaven erupts in celebration when the effects of his love are realized by those who he created. It is not different than when we cheer and celebrate when those we love finally come to know why we do what we do, and it's because we love them. Isn't that when your, your child finally gets why they, you have asked them to clean their room the whole time is because you want them to live a good and orderly life. And they finally get it. Like, oh, I get it now. This is why you taught me these things. This is why you did those things. Those are the moments that we celebrate as parents, right, when our children finally get that. And that is why heaven erupts in celebration when God's creatures begin to realize that he is love. He is the source of love. And all that he has for us is love. And all he wants us to do is love. In a sense, there is no dimmer switch with God's love. God is radical with love. He's very prodigal with it. The light of his love is never dimmed and nor is it made brighter. It is always on and it's always intense. It is only our relationship to his love that seems to change its intensity. With your back against it, it appears not as bright, but with your face in it, no one can even look upon its greatness. The love of God that is poured out for us in, in Jesus Christ and leads us to repentance should be absorbed into our very being as if we are a sponge so that when we're squeezed and pressed or applied, only love comes sweating through our pores, words, and deeds. Another lesson that we learn from the Father in this parable is that the Father's love is not robbed by rejection, nor is it bought with submission, but it is unconditional love to which the older brother should have known as the defining character of his father and in which the younger recognizes, repents, and then pursues. The father's love isn't diminished by the acts of either of the sons. The younger seeks to find a better love in the world only to find that there is no greater love than the father. The elder seeks to love through his accomplishments but discovers that his father's love isn't contingent on that 
and that there's no works that can earn or grow his love, that his love is in full intensity at all times, and it's not contingent upon him. The love of the Father is determined not by how everybody responds or how everybody acts or what other things externally are done. The Father is love because that's who he is. This is the reason why Jesus celebrates with sinners. Because the point here that Jesus is making in the character of the Father is that I am a God of love. I did not give you the law to conjure up love in you. I gave you the law to show you what it is to measure how great my love is for you. How you can live and measure if your life is lived out in love. See, I celebrate those who cherish love. And when you cherish love, that means you come to the source of love. And what is the source of love but the one who says, I'm love? That's his response. That's his answer. The reason why I'm celebrating is because somebody wants to be loved and has sought me for it and they will get it. And it's not contingent upon what they failed at and it's not contingent about how you've succeeded. It's just contingent because I'm love and when I'm pursued and when your mind changes and knows that I am love, I will give it to you. All you have to do is ask. Isn't this what the scriptures say? Ask and you shall receive. If you want to live and experience the true prodigal love of God the Father, all you have to do is ask and you shall receive. There are lessons that we just generally learn in this parable. If we are to learn anything from what Jesus is telling us here in this story is that we need to be a people of the heart a heart created by the Holy Spirit to love God and others. Tell me, which is better, to live struggling to love or to be naturally capable of loving? The former comes from a heart of stone, but the latter comes from a new heart worked by the Holy Spirit. This is the idea that we all need not just acts of love, but our heart. Because I can pretend to you that I love you, but if my heart is turned against you, my actions mean nothing. Remember, Paul says that you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, but if you don't do it in love, it's meaningless. You're annoying. And if we are honest, we can find ourselves in the younger son, or even in the elder son, or possibly in both from time to time. But the truth is clear. The heart is of the most concern to God. Not our acts, not our works, the heart. For where the heart is, your life will follow. Be smitten with the love of God. Ask the God of love for a heart full of his love so that a life of love can be set into motion in your life. Today, say, Father, by your love, save me. I am yours. Or say, Father, in your love, 
sanctify me, for I am yours. I have a word to the religious and who boast in the works, those who would be kind of in the camp of the Pharisees. Without love, it is meaningless, like I've already said. Do not presume that unconditional love can be bought by your efforts, that is, by definition, conditional love. If you do not embrace the kind of love that Jesus reveals here in the father of this story, then you do not embrace the one true God who is love and leads life, changed by being radically loving. Neither hate of others nor love of self flows from God. If you believe yourself to be God's creatures, then you must come to orient your life towards God's intention, which is for you and all his creation to glory and live in the abundant love for which he made and saved the world. There's a question here, though, one that I even wrestled with. So what about the law? Like, I mean, is it meaningless? Is it, I mean, what, what is, like, it really, really, I think a lot of people struggle with, like, but, I, I mean, I've kept some good things. I've done some good things. I can sit here and tell you, like, I don't cuss. I, I don't take God's name in vain. Like, I keep the law. I do good things. I, I try to do good to others. Is that just all meaningless? What, what do I understand about the law? What are you saying about the law? This is what I would say. Rules, regulations, or better known as law, serves as a benefit only in the sense that it is a grace that curbs the most ferocious appetites of sin so as to not let you come to your death so quickly. It is a caregiver to preserve you for the day in which love overtakes you. Secondly, it is a measure by which we can see how we fall short and a measure by which we can come to know that love has captured us. The purpose of the law is to curb your appetite for sin so that you don't easily and quickly run to your death. That's a grace that God affords us by giving us the law. He looks at the fallen, corrupted creation, and he says, you guys are about to go kill yourselves in the wrong way. My grace is I'm going to give you a law to put the bounds on that. Secondly, the law is a measuring stick. It will reveal to you where you are short. It will reveal to you that you cannot do it. It will reveal to you that you will fall short over and over and over again. But it also will reveal to you my nature. It will also reveal to you the measure by which you can see love come from your life. For if you are loving God and loving others, which is the summation of the law, then you know that love has captured you. So it's a measuring stick. That's what the law is for. And the law neither produces salvation nor sanctification in your life. Only love. What draws you to repentance? What makes that life change in you? Is it really the set of rules your parents have put on you? Is it really the, the set of rules that have happened, the regulations that have been put upon your life? Did that really save your life or did it just curb you? Because God's word says, and I think this is a very hard thing to learn and even apply, even for me, that it is loving kindness that leads people to repentance. Not a 10-step program. That's what I find the scriptures to speak about. And yet there is a third purpose of the law. 
and that is to reveal the very character of God. For a life that follows all the law from the motive of love would be the exact imprint of the nature of God revealing the very character of God. And yet only Jesus has accomplished this. And without that same spirit that dwelled in Jesus working in you, you will never be able to accomplish it at all. See, the law is to point to how loving God is because it's a law about him and how he has created things to be right and it's a law about your relationship with others. It is loving not to take things from other people. Don't steal. It's loving not to envy, but to be satisfied with what you're given. It is loving to honor your parents. See, it's revealing the rightness of God. It's revealing his loving nature and character. And only Jesus, who we learn in Hebrews, is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Because he was perfectly living out that law, not just in his works, but from his heart. For it was not just, oh, I got to go to the cross and die, but with the joy set before him, he died for those who would believe. That's working from a position of love, not working to accomplish and get love. And finally, just an aside here, something I found very interesting, that there's a hidden analogy even in this parable. And we have to look through the other scriptures in order for it to come to full view. But the younger son, he comes home, and the father tells the servants to clothe him in robes, rings, sandals. And that kind of get this image of the family attire. Because there's just not any ring, just not any robe, just not any sandals. These are the family's jewels. This is the family attire. And we do not know when the, son, uh, when the son was to flee from home if he was stripped of these clothes or if he laid them aside for his own disdain for his family. All we know is that he didn't possess them when they come back and he had to be clothed with them. It would be reasonable to think that the son laid them aside due to the fact that that he had such great disdain for his father and the love that he had for himself. But upon his return, he is met by his father who orders the living son to be clothed, not only covering his shame, but restoring his dignity. See, to, to eat food with pigs in a Jewish culture is like being a sex offender within five miles of a school. Nobody wants them. And yet, he is made, not a servant, which he's expecting, but he's made a son. The the shame, the humility that he brought on in his own life by pursuing things, by leaving his family, by wasting away, by being prodigal about his possessions, being prodigal about his life, been riddled in shame. There's no ounce of dignity left. Who is the one that gave him his dignity back but the father? 
The love of the Father does more than just cover the cost of sin upon our lives, but it also cloaks us in his royalty and makes us more than what we are. Doesn't this happen with Adam and Eve in the garden? They exchange that truth for a lie because of the serpent, and having become shameful, God clothes them with robes from his clothes that he made with the sacrifice of the animal. And so there's this, there's this take home, and this is where I want to bring this parable all the way home into our lives. Imagine, if you will, two children. Maybe you might have experienced this. Maybe you were one of these children. There's two prodigal children. One seems to ignore anything you say, causing you extreme frustration. The other will do anything you say, but will make their displeasure known, usually in a fine. Imagine one child who seeks out, who sneaks out late at night to pursue their own pleasures, and another child who wakes up when you call, but on the wrong side of the bed. A child who plays too much, and another who pays with obedience to earn your love. One who seems to make poor decisions, and the other who seems to make all the right ones and positions themselves toward success. A child who lets things out while the other holds things in. A child who is better at spending and a child better at saving. A child who easily makes friends and another child who isn't so good at relationships. A child who fights with their fists and another who fights with their wit. Both children approach life in different ways, but both are wrong. Both want love. One seeks it in the world, and the other seeks it in his works. Both are different, but both have the same problem. Both respond differently, but both need the same remedy. Both are lost, but the one who repents for love is found. And so how, learning, how can we apply what the lessons from this Father and what Jesus is communicating, these truths that we can hang on to about being unconditionally loving, allow love to be the tool by which we parent and engage with other people as it is the greatest force that we can ever do, how can we apply that then? How can we become prodigal parents the way there is a prodigal father who prodigally loves, radically loves? Prodigal parents should be most concerned about the heart and seeks to capture the heart with love unconditionally. This is the idea that if you really want to capture your children, if you want to really raise them up in the way that they should go, which is the way of the Lord, then you have to act like God in this regard. Go for their heart. Go for their heart. I have to admit to you that it is so much easier to have the, the rules and the regulations and a system and it's all ordered and nice and neat, but those things don't go for the heart. You gotta go for the heart. Orient your parenting towards engaging the heart of the child, not the actions of the child. Celebrate nothing more than those who repent as often as they repent and withhold nothing from those who repent. Make repentance the greatest celebration in your household that one could ever embark on. 
make repentance the thing that you see and proclaim that it is for their most good. Celebrate repentance as often as they repent. And if you are really working love into their lives, they will want to repent because what leads us to repentance but loving kindness. That means if they are constantly repenting, you are being loving and kind and it's drawing them to you and it's stirring their heart towards you. And isn't that what all parents desire is for their kids? Not to have to obey, but get to obey their parents because they love them. Because they have seen what true love is mimicked in the lives of their parents. Make repentance a big deal. Apply to the wounds of mischief, to rebellion, the balm of love. My dad ruled with an iron fist. Man, he just had to raise one eyebrow and he can speak fear into me. And as many of you know, about three years, he's, he passed away. And still the question that I still ask myself, did he really love me? I don't want to say yes. But there's been so many moments when I just didn't know. Like to what extent? Was he, was he proud of me? I just don't really know. I believe so, but wouldn't you want to cast out all question in your child's mind and heart that you are above all things madly in love with them? I should never have to question that. And if we just constantly rule with iron fists, if we just constantly bark at them, if we just constantly say, you need to act right, and that's all we communicate, maybe when you come to the end of your life, they might still be questioning, did, are they proud? Did they really love me or do they just want me to behave better? A prodigal parent entrusts all things to the heavenly father and anticipates his intervention. A prodigal parent knows that it's not about them. Your children come from you. You didn't choose them, but you know who did? God. He designed them. He wired them. He made them for his own pleasure, for him to love them, for them to mirror him. You are to steward his children. And so you need to stir their hearts up in such a way that, that they are, you are entrusting them to the Father. So you're not so quickly bent out of shape when they're not around you. When they go like the younger off into a foreign country, because you know they are the fathers, and you are entrusting them to him. And you are anticipating that he will intervene. It's called faith. A prodigal parent holds as truth that family is family, never communicating that there is something I can do, something they can do, that could put them on the outs of the family. Once a child never a servant. Isn't that what we learn from the father? Is that children, there, is, there was this culture. It's, it was even in my own family. I just, I, I'm continuing to use experiences in my own family that there was disowning. I was disowned for going into the ministry. 
My other sister was disowned for having a baby out of wedlock. There was this idea in communicated in my family to me that there is something you can do that would make love come and go from your parents or make you make your connection and relationship come and go. That is a relationship not founded on unconditional love, but on works. That's earning love, being merited love. And that is not what we find here. It's the very thing the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. Why are you celebrating with them? Because family's family. And I would have you know that there is nothing that you can do to remove yourself outside that I will not come and find you. And when, I re- when you come back home, that I would not celebrate. The prodigal family fights for family unity. A prodigal parent, they are not deterred by rebellious children, nor are they deterred by religious children, but they commit to the love that will lead them to repentance. Notice the two responses that the father gave. He both came and covered the distance that uh, the two sons separated themselves from the father. His response to the one who had repented was loving kindness. Let's get them. Let's clothe them. Let's do all this. The other one, he comes out, and he doesn't clothe him, right? He's probably already wearing the clothes. But what does he do? He pleads with him. So sometimes your approach and your response will be unique to that child, but it has to be done through loving kindness. A prodigal parent, all they can, they do all they can so that their children delight in the Heavenly Father above themselves. And this is how often we say it. It, We say it and we point to ourselves when we say, it's because I said so. Take that moment and don't say, it's not because I said so, but because it makes God smile. One communicates that it is about you. Yes, you have parental authority. I'm not trying to diminish that. You have parental authority. But the better thing is to say, God loves you. And God, this breaks God's heart. I'm asking you not to do that because I want to see God smile. One positions the heart towards God more than you. And we should be stirring our heart, the children's hearts up towards them, towards him. A prodigal parent always reminds their family of the gospel to prevent them from relapsing into rebellious or religious tendencies that their children are so prone to do. You have to keep working loving kindness in your family. You have to be sharing that gospel. The gospel orients our way of thinking towards the unconditional love of the Father that was exhibited in his son, Jesus, who died. And lastly, the prodigal parent greets failure with love and disappointment with reassurance. This will speak the truth to them when they're in a position and so vulnerable to the lies of Satan. 
having been a person and continues to this day to be so susceptible to the lies of Satan riddling in my ear, reminding me of the things I've done wrong, reminding me that I, am, I have shame, I have guilt. There are these things in my life that are not pretty. I, I am like the younger son. That's what they'll hear when they've come to the bottom. And you should be the voice of reason and truth. And so when they fail, greet them with love. And when they are disappointed in themselves, reassure them. It is not about rebellion or religion, but it is about relationship. Be a prodigal parent who lives loosely with love and grace to draw your children to repentance and unto salvation. The point of this whole parable is unconditional love. Unconditional love is more than enough to combat a religious or uh, rebellious child and shepherd their heart towards God. Therefore, we must be parents about the heart, shepherding our children's heart by love so that if they make an end of themselves, they will remember the love of God and seek it out. Parents, it would be of great benefit to reflect upon your parenting towards your children. Are you only creating children for work or for love? Are you more concerned about their manners, behavior, or their heart? For with a changed heart will come all the rest. But if you have all the rest and not have the heart, you still don't have the child. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have taught us today through your word by way of parable of how and who you are. You are love, and you desire all those to be drawn to repentance by your love, and you desire for all of us to live by, fueled by your love. And so I just, I pray right now that for any of us who seem to cite with the religious or seem to cite more with the rebellious, that Father, that we would be drawn to repent of that because of your unconditional love for which you have loved us in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that those who long to be loved and who have not felt loved, that Father, they, they would come to know how serious and radical you are about love. And that as they approach you, Father, I pray that you would save them, that they would become yours. For those who find themselves saved today, Father, I pray that you would keep them in your love and keep working your love in them so that as they are pushed and pressed and prodded on, that only love, your kind of love, comes out of their lives. And I pray for all of us parents, that we can be prodigal parents the way you are a prodigal God who lavishly loves and uses that as the main tool by which we parent and shepherd the hearts of our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand.